Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Chris Sarah. Uh, it's July 13th, 2023. We're at Ponzi Vineyards in Sherwood. And thank you to the whole team here at Ponzi for letting us use their space today. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate this. Uh, first question, why wine? Why wine? Um, well, I, I suppose I could tell you about why I got into the industry, which was um, I, I'm originally from the East Coast, from New Jersey. and. I had been living with a, a college friend of mine for a few years, and we found ourselves um, unemployed for about a year and, and just kind of fixing up his house. And um, we, f- we decided to both get a job at a, a tasting room at a winery in Pennsylvania, actually. This was in Delaware. Um, and we worked in a tasting room at a winery in Chadsford, Pennsylvania um, for the summer. And, Pouring, pouring wine behind the tasting room bar, emptying spit buckets and everything like that, and um, just for fun. Um, and I actually had a friend who was a, a psalm in New York City who um, would bring home, different friend, would bring home really good wines from work, and it sort of opened my eyes to this idea that that wine was something that I'd be interested in, and that was bigger than and more more complex than just, you know, what I'd known my whole life until then, I was probably in my I don't know, mid-20s at that point. Um, so yeah, that kind of opened my eyes to, to it. And then combina- in combination with the, the job at the winery, I sort of got interested in the production end. And um, I, had, I, I was around um, 30 years old, and I, I was about to turn 30. And I decided to move out to Portland uh, just for a change of life, a different kind of adventure. and. No really reason, no real big reason in particular, but um, I had been here um, for a vacation and loved it and decided to move out here. And when I told my boss at the winery, he said, oh, you have to look up Al McDonald in, in, uh, in Oregon. You're, you're, I know you're interested in environmentalism. And he's founded this program called Live, and you should, you should talk to him when you get out there. So, and he also put me in t- touch with uh, Mark Chen who was then in Pennsylvania, uh, and I had not met him in person. I just spoke with him over the phone, and he sort of reiterated uh, the, the idea of talking to Al and getting interested in live. So when I moved out here, I ended up getting a job at the Carlton Winemaker Studio for, I don't know, a few months, um, also in the tasting room. And that was a great job because I learned so much from so many different people. Uh, they had you know, a cooperative there. Of, at the time, I think it was something like 10 different winemakers um, I learned a lot from, from all of them. Andrew Rich, in particular, taught me a lot about um, production and kind of the marketing of wine, too, actually. And so uh, just kind of um, learned a lot from that job and, and kind of paid my dues, I think, a little bit. And uh, funny enough, you know, we're here at Ponzi, and, and Louise's husband was the, one of the main partners at the Carlton Winemaker Studio. So. The industry's small and has a, a long uh, memory, I think. And so while I was there, I decided to write some letters to the board of directors of Live and, 
asked them if there was any, uh, if there were any openings, if there was any interest in having someone come in and do some work for them. And it just so happened, and my timing was perfect. They were um, hiring their first full-time person at the, at the time that I wrote these letters. And they said, yeah, come in for an interview. And, and I went for an interview at um, Alan Holstein's ranch. And it was outside, and the whole, the whole uh, board of directors was there, and Alan's dog was walking around, sniffing at me while I'm dressed in a suit, thinking, you know, this, I'm an East Coaster, got to dress nice, you know? And uh, they're all kind of just like, yeah, okay. You know, so I, I think I passed the test, and they, they hired me. So that was kind of how I started it live. And, um, you know, your initial question, you know, why wine? I, I think wine is a very, I wasn't really raised to, to appreciate wine. We, we weren't really a wine drinking family. Um, I grew up um, in a kind of a Italian household and we had, you know, big jugs of cheap wine sometimes for Sunday, Sunday dinner, um, sangria or something like that, but never anything, never any fine wine or anything like that. And it took, you know, kind of my coming of age to learn about it and appreciate everything that goes into it and everything that can come out of it actually. Um, I th I, I'm very much interested in art and music. I studied music in college and philosophy, and um, I'm very much interested in the, po the poetics of everyday life and the poetics of, that go into making wine and what wine can actually do for you when you consume it in terms of uh, you know, transcendence. I, I've, I've had a couple of pretty transcendent experiences when, when having some wine. We come back to that and pick it up, but let's talk about life before wine a little bit. You mentioned growing up East Coast. Tell us about uh, heading to college and sort of what you were thinking about for your life at that point as you were choosing college and choosing majors and things like that. Sure, um, I I was very much interested in environmental science, and in fact, I started my I went to University of Delaware. Um, I grew up, like I said, in New Jersey and uh, wanted to stay somewhat close to home, and um, I studied environmental science for two years, and after taking um, I was very much interested in the environmental part of things, but the science part was a little tricky. So I took, you know, chemistry and calculus, and I did okay, but not not great. And I wasn't really, you know, the University of Delaware is sort of like a training ground for DuPont engineers. So they, they tailor their curriculum, I think, to that um, type of a student. And so I was like, I'm not going to be an engineer at DuPont. I don't want to be a scientist. I want to be, you know, I'm an environmentalist kind of first, and maybe, you know, in the general sense of the word, a poet, you know, kind of uh, more of a, an artist type, a sensitive type, and I wanted to do something more creative, and so I, I switched majors to music, and I remember I was in a, you know, a rock band at the time, and I didn't know the first thing about classical music, and I went in for my, my, my audition and played some, you know, song that my band had written, and the, the Guitar teacher kind of looked at me. And he's like, "That's the first time anyone's ever done that." <laughs> and he's, you know, he said, "This is a classical guitar program, and and uh, we're going to have to reteach you how to play guitar." So I said, "All right, you know, if you're willing to take a chance." And so they took me in the program, and I studied music. And then it just so happened that at the end of college, I had enough credits to earn a second degree in philosophy because I was also interested in in philosophy as well. And it, funny enough, the philosophy degree, the philosophy studies that I undertook probably helped me more in my life than anything else. You know, music, I'm, I, I'll love music for the rest of my life, um, but I don't think I ever got to the point where I was 
good enough to make a career out of being a performer, and I didn't have kind of the attention or dedication to, to do that. It's a lot of work um, to be good at anything, but especially something so kind of abstract as music. Um, so, you know, I consider myself a musician, uh, I think, uh, kind of at the end of the day, <laughs> but um, I think that from what I've read from some of the founders of the industry, there were a lot of sort of generalists and musicians and photographers and artists that came to Oregon to start um, to start growing grapes because you know there's a lot of time in between growing the grapes and drinking the wine, so you got to do something with your time. And yeah, so I, uh, that was my thought going into college was I wanted to be an environmentalist. And uh, after college, I kind of you know realized oh I. You know, you can't really make that much money as a musician unless you're a musician, you know. So I, I ended up working at a musical instrument mail order company. So I sold trumpets and violins over the phone and stuff like that. And um, I cut my teeth on customer service there, which I think has helped me a lot with live, actually, because there's no angrier person than a southern band director that doesn't have their trumpet in time for, you know, marching band season. And you have to kind of, you know, figure out what you can do for them in the absence of like the thing that they want. So I think that actually helped me a lot with, with live because there is a lot of customer service that goes into this work because it, you're asking a lot of people and it's pretty complex stuff at the end of the day. So um, yeah, and then when I moved out here, it was kind of, you know, I got kind of taken by the, the industry. And when I, when I did end up talking to Al, um, he, he became kind of a mentor to me, and um, when I was hired, I worked you know a couple doors down from him at Chemeketa Community College, uh, where he was at the time, and I learned a lot from him. And I think you know a big thing that I learned from him was to um, you know figure it out. You know you don't have to have the answer to everything at the time that the problem comes out. Is to you know Jason Tosh also told me the same thing: take ownership of this. This is your this is your baby now. So you have to figure out the answers. There's not always going to be an answer for you from someone, but you know you have your own kind of agency and way of doing things. And it took me a few months to get my bearings because I didn't really know um, too much about sustainable wine when I got this job. They hired me because I actually went back to school after um, I had my music experience to get a business degree. Um, and so I have an MBA, and that was done over the course of four years while I was working at the the musical instrument company. And so once I got that degree, I said I have to you know, do something. I always wanted to be sort of an entrepreneur or do something with my own business. Um, and so that's kind of how I landed where I landed, which is you know, essentially running my own business. But you know, I, of course, have to answer to a board of directors and to the industry. But um, I sort of have a lot of flexibility in what I decide and how I move things through the industry. So. It's kind of a uh, you know a dream job in a, in a lot of ways. So tell me about about meeting with Al originally and about sort of what live was at that point or what the, what the kind of the concept was as they were looking to hire someone like you. Sure, and it's funny because when I, I remember when I went to that interview, I actually called live low in, uh, impact viticulture analogy, which is what a lot of people think that it's called. It's actually low input viticulture analogy. That's where the acronym comes from. So me being kind of a novice at this stuff, I didn't really even know the name of the organization when I went to the interview, which is kind of funny. Um, so when I first started working with Al, I think that the, the, the organization was at a point where 
um, they had done as much as they could do without a full-time person really just focusing on building the organization out and kind of thinking at it, of it through more of a business lens than an environmental lens. And because the organization was founded by growers um, and, and founded by university extension scientists, it, was, it had more of a science-leaning uh, grower um, focus than, than really trying to take that work that had been done up to that point. It was, I was hired in 2007. So I'd come in about nine or 10 years into the, the organization's existence. And we had 150 members at the time. Right now we have almost 400, including the winery members. So the program was you know, three times smaller than it, than it was at, at this point now. So um, I remember I showed up and the desk had, um, you know, they gave me a laptop and the desk had like a pile of certificates and the certificates were just sitting in a pile. And I had a database, an access database, and they said, you know, all right, here you go. <laughs> and uh, I remember Al, I said to Al, I looked at the budget, and I was like, you know, we're in the red in the budget. What happens if we run out of money? He said, oh, I guess you're going to have to volunteer then. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. That was, you know, that was nice of you to tell me during the interview. So first day of work, show up, and we're going to run out of money in a year. So the first thing I did was... Uh, I started meeting with people in the industry and introducing myself, and I, I met with Jim Berno at Willamette Valley Vineyards, and I walked in to meet him, and the, really the first thing that I wanted to do was just introduce myself to him. I didn't know kind of like who the big players were. I had to rely on Al for that. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first thing Jim said to me when I sat down, I shook his hand, he said, how much do you need? <laughs> and it, it caught me off guard because I hadn't intended to ask him for anything uh, at that point, and he gave us a grant, and that grant kept us afloat for the first year or two that I was there. And then, you know, I got things rolling and I think we increased the dues at some point early on because we weren't charging enough. And it took us a few years of, you know, losing a little bit of money each year, but we ended up breaking even after, um, I don't know what it was, like six or seven years of, of running the organization. And we've been, you know, in the black ever since. You know, some years we invest some of that money back into the organization. We are a nonprofit. So, um, some years it'll look like we, we actually lost money, but it's just because we're investing it into the next year's budget. So um, we're doing pretty well now. Um, but the first, you know, kind of couple years that I worked with Al, um, uh, I worked in <laughs> what was, it, they had converted like a, a I, I call it a broom closet, but it was like a, it was, Chemeketa is an event, was an event center, um, at least that, that location of Chemeketa community college was an event center for um, like weddings and stuff like that. And it was the room where like the brides would get changed for the, the, the wedding. And they're like, well, that's the only room we have. So here you go. Um, so, you know, I started working from home a little bit and um, they actually built another building next to it, uh, which is the, I think it's called the ERAS Center now, at uh, the Wine Study Center, which, you know, later became the Wine Study Center. So. Um, they, they actually set up a room in that building specifically for live, which was Al's doing. And, um, but I live in Portland, and so you know, slowly time went by, I started working more from home, and now it's, it's completely remote. So, um, but Al moved away to California to retire, and we still talk, and I think that he's pretty happy with the way things have gone since he handed over the reins to me. He had, uh, they had someone working part-time, um, Teresa Solar, her name was, and I had never actually met her in person, but we, she trained me, you know, 
over the phone, and we didn't have Zoom back then, so it was mostly over the phone and email. And um, I basically kind of like understood the way she was running things, and her and her partner were running things sort of um, half time. And um, I came in and basically kept the things that she was doing that worked. And then I still do a few things that I still run things a little bit like she had run them back then in 2005, six, and they still work now. So, you know, from an administrative kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the DNA of the program was there. It just needed, I think, someone to come in and like kind of polish it up and clean, you know, clear away the weeds, so to speak. Um, and I think that's, that's probably what I did in the beginning. And then I kind of moved into more of like a, a director position where I was actually like coming up with projects and building the program out to what I think it should have been mm -hmm. eventually. So going from just kind of like a third party certification of viticultural practices to more of a broad sustainability organization that's looked at from around the world as kind of a, a model for how to do this work. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's kind of the arc of it. Let's dive into that a little bit more. You mentioned the, the DNA, as you said, it kind of a third party certification. So tell us about sort of from your perspective, from your understanding, the, the, the kind of foundations of Live and when, it, when you took it over, what was the point of it and who was already involved at that point? The point of it was to give third party credibility to claims of sustainability. I think the big challenge back then and still is to some degree is this idea of greenwashing, of making claims that you're environmental or that you're sustainable without any kind of um, proof or um, third party kind of standard that you're, you're meeting or working towards. Um, I think that that was kind of the, the reason why it succeeded was because there were a lot of growers that were doing this already. They were, they were farming to what is now considered sustainable live standards, but there was no standard then, so they built it. Um, and we, you know, we hire ins contracted inspectors that have no kind of financial vested interest in whether you pass the inspection or not. So that's kind of the arm's length third party. Um, and so they come in and they review your work versus what you say, you know, you do a self-reporting of how you're managing your vineyard or in the case of the winery certification, how you're managing your winery. Uh, and you submit some paperwork that backs that up and then the inspector comes in and they walk the site with you and they, uh, they make sure that you're doing what you say you're doing. Um, and we've had the same inspectors for a long time, and so they know the program inside and out. Uh, and their DNA is in the program just as much as Al's or mine or, or you know, Jason Tosh's or anything like that, um, because they, they see hundreds of vineyards every year. Um, but beyond the third party certification, I thought, well, you know, that's great. And that could sustain the organization as a business kind of indefinite, as, as long as certification is sort of valuable in the marketplace as it was. Um, but I, I, I wanted to do something bigger, I think, that, than just the certification in order to bolster the standing of the organization because we're a small industry in a small, you know, wine producing state. When you look at the global wine production, we're very, very small. So you have to do something that's special, I think, in order to, to be looked at as the model for, for the world. And so I started looking at things like, well, I mean, when I, first, when I was first hired, they asked me to build out the winery certification, which didn't exist then. Um, so we built a winery certification uh, to 
complement the, the vineyard certification that was pretty successful at that point. Um, and then um, the Oregon Wine Board decided that they wanted to create a program called Oregon Certified Sustainable Wine, which would allow growers to blend live and organic and biodynamic fruit into a bottling and have a label for it. Because with our program, you have to have nearly all of your grapes have to be certified. 97% have to be certified in order to use our logo on the bottle. Uh, and so there were people using our grapes and organic grapes, and they're saying, well, organic is sustainable too. And you know, you can make an argument one way or the other, depending on who you talk to, whether it is. But um, if, it's per if it's practiced properly and with good intention, then it is sustainable. So you, know, you should be able to blend these, um, these crops together and have a label for it. And so the Oregon Wine Board created one. Uh, and that required that we have a winery certification, a processing certification, it, because Organic has one, they have a processing one, uh, Demeter has a processing one with biodynamic. Um, and so they wanted us to create a, a processing certification. It could have been a bare bones thing, but we decided to go full bore and you know, do a, a, basically a matching certification to the vineyard program. And so that's basically where that, that grew out of. And then, um, you know, we just started to expand a little bit into, um, we were already in Washington a little bit in Walla Walla when I was hired and we decided to expand into central Washington, into Idaho eventually in 2012. So we defined the Pacific Northwest as Oregon, Washington and Idaho for the wine industry. Uh, so we don't certify in California, we don't certify outside of, or uh, outside of the Pacific Northwest, um, but we do, work with other certifying bodies in New York. I helped to build a New York certification program a couple years ago. Um, Long Island, uh, Finger Lakes, um, were part of this kind of consortium of sustainability organizations that the California Sustainable Wine Growing Alliance uh, manages, which includes you know, California, Oregon, Washington, and New York. And so we're, we're a big part of that. Um, I've been, uh, to England to, to consult on their sustainability industry. I've, uh, they, they asked me to speak in, in Brussels at the EU sustainability um, conference in 2012. That was kind of a highlight of my life, I think, was to actually kind of present this work to, to the EU, you know, and during their sustainability week that they were having. So that was, you know, that's all those things, you know, put together sort of raised our profile, I think, about are standing in the in the in the world of sustainable wines, you know, in general sustainability as well. So, so you've talked a little bit about obviously steps you've taken. So obviously the, the the idea of sustainability and the term sustainability has changed quite a bit since since you took over, just in the, sort of the general among the general population. So, how has how have you changed live, or how has live changed, um, and how are the standards now sort of compared to where they were? I think that probably. What live has done, and you know, I can't take credit for. By the way, you know, all of this. This is this is a lot of volunteers. This is a lot of very smart people that are running our technical committees. Like currently, Lee Bartholomew is running our our vineyard technical committee. Before her, we had you know Chad Vargas. We had Jason Tosh ran it for a number of years, and he probably, out of anybody, he probably has the most to say about um, had the most to say about our program's development and had the most impact, I should say, um, about the standards and, and all of the things that we branched out into and stuff like that. I think that was mainly Jason um, and everybody else has kind of built on that. 
Um, but sustainability, I think that it was very narrowly focused when I came in, at least for, the, for, for live, it was very narrowly focused to viticulture and to good viticultural practices. And I sort of said, okay, that's great. Uh, extension, University Extension has a lot of these standards, or a lot of these uh, recommendations, best practices already. Um, so why don't we kind of, you know, we're going to keep that obviously in our program, but let's also focus on the broader ecosystem, biodiversity, worker health and safety. Um, let's, let's focus on social sustainability. Let's focus on oak trees. Let's focus on pollinators. So these things weren't really talked about explicitly in our standard. They were sort of like a byproduct of doing this work in the beginning. Um, but rather than being a byproduct, I, I wanted to educate the industry on these things explicitly and, and focus on you know maybe one thing a year or something like that. Maybe we'll, this year we'll focus on oaks. A couple years ago we focused on pollinators. And so once you get people talking about this stuff, um, they learn about it and they, they gets exciting and then maybe the public kind of, you know, it's in the zeitgeist a little bit and the public talks about pollinators uh, more than they were a few years ago. And so they, they're looking for that kind of focus on um, businesses to, to save, save the bees essentially. And um, I think that my job is to make people aware of this stuff before it's it, before it catches up with them and they have to go back and say, oh, I, I really need to do this thing because now the public's talking about it and um, you know, obviously people should be doing this anyway for the good of uh, the planet and it's intrinsic good, but a lot of people do this stuff because they're being asked to by their customers and, um, or, they're, or they're seeing it in the marketplace that it has value and they want to do it. So um, I think my job is to kind of keep my, my finger on the the, the pulse of like kind of the next thing. Um, and I think I do that fairly well. So I think that's sort of like focusing on those individual issues over time, you know, accumulate. And then that sort of builds the definition of sustainability and you start to see where all of these things connect and they all sort of intersect. And, you know, saving the pollinators and saving the, the oak habitat sort of go hand in hand. and. Um, oh, by the way, you know, birds live in trees, and by the way, bees feed on the nectar that are in the trees and feed on, butterflies feed on a certain flower that only comes and lives underneath an oak tree. So these things, they start to see the connections. And I think when you give people the connections, they start to um, really understand the work and, you know, all of those best practices and, and all of those kind of like the little things that are in, the, in our standard that kind of are like, why are you even talking about uh, shoot thinning or um, cover crop in the row. Like, what are what are these like these these things that you're talking about? Why aren't you talking about bigger things? And it's because they're all the building blocks of the bigger things. And so I think that sustainability now, people will say, oh, sustainability just is just kind of like best practice best best practices conventional farming. And it's like, well, maybe now they are, but before you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, conventional farming was much worse than it is now. Now conventional farming and sustainable farming are sort of kind of closer together because conventional came over to sustainable. It's not that sustainable went the other way. I think that we did our job and that we've, we've kind of eliminated conventional farming as it was seen in the you know, 80s and 70s and after World War II and all of that. So we got rid of all those really heavy inputs and kind of the seeing the 
the ground is sort of an inert medium to grow your crop, and now it's a living thing. People are seeing it as it, what it is, and so I think we've done our job in that sense. I think where, where I'd like to see it go is, okay, now that we're there, what's the next step? And the next step is to regenerate, right? So we've got regenerative agriculture coming into the, the mainstream now, and I think people need to be thinking about not just keeping things at status quo, not, think, not keeping things at net, you know, not good, not bad, but kind of net neutral, and going towards repairing all of the damage that's been done. And you know, obviously we can't do that alone in the wine industry in Oregon. It's a global thing. It's gotta be done by every industry, agriculture, you know, aerospace, like every, it's gotta be done by all of these kind of heavy industries. We're a very small part of the puzzle, but it's our part, right? I like to say like, you know, we're a small drop in the ocean, but it's our drop. It's kind of the thing I say at, at meetings. And I think it, it resonates because people get so overwhelmed because the world is on fire and, you know, what do we do? Like, you can't solve the, the problem just by managing your vineyard in a regenerative way. But I like to think of things, like this comes back to kind of like my philosophy background, Kant's uh, categorical imperative, which is to act in a way that your actions be, would become a universal law. And he was talking about morality, but I think that um, I have sort of an environmental equivalent to that, which is you know act in a way that your environment, environmental actions would become a universal law. So like if you were to throw a, a soda can out your window of the car, that means it's okay for everybody to do that. Um, if you were to plant a tree, that means it's good for everybody to do that. So what's the what are the things that would be okay for everybody to do? Not even okay, but good for everybody to do, and do those things. Um, so that's sort of where I stand now and how I view environmentalism is to do those things yourself, knowing that you're doing your part and that it might inspire others to do the same thing. You mentioned both sort of the number of volunteers and the, and the board of directors obviously working with you. Tell me about um, Having the having that amount of people in on this kind of project and answering to different people, how do you form consensus? How do you decide what live standards are going to be and, and kind of where where your practice is going to go? Sure. So I mean, the standards. You know, this is a little bit of kind of like technical housekeeping, but like the standards come from Europe. So we have a third-party accreditation called the IOBC, which stands for the International Organization for Biological Control. And I know that you've, you've spoken to a few people about this organization and they, they oversee, uh, they basically do applied research in sustainability and they're a global organization. We deal with their, their European chapter. Um, and that's the organization that helped us build live in the first place. They, they gave us a framework basically of sustainable standards to build on. And then we take those standards and we um, craft them through committees. So we have a number of we call them technical committees that take the standards and work them to regional appropriateness. And then when we're done with that, we send them back to Europe for, for approval. So if you know, we take their standard and we change it too much, they might say, well, wait a minute, why are you doing that? What's so special about you know, Oregon that, or Washington that you have to do this, that you have to allow this particular pesticide or something like that? And then we'll give them the research and we'll work it out. And so there's a consensus building between Europe and, and, and our program, between the IOBC and our program, but consensus within our program is, 
I mean, we're a pretty harmonious group for the most part. I think the growers all know each other, and that's kind of one of the benefits of having a small industry. I think everybody sort of knows what everyone is going to say at these meetings. And, um, and so you kind of come in with these ideas, and you, I, you know, my, my tactic, and maybe I shouldn't even say this, but my tactic is to come in with the answer already and then get everyone to sort of understand my thinking behind the answer and try to arrive at it if it is the right answer, but um, sometimes it's not the right answer. Sometimes I come in with an idea and they're like, wait a minute, that's not how things work. And so then you get people talking, but you have to seed the conversation or else people kind of just sit there like, why am I, why am I at this meeting? Um, you know, usually it's about a new product that's come out or something like that. You know, oh, this product is a biological, maybe this could replace one of the other older chemicals that is a synthetic or something like that. Um, and then we have to go through the paces of like, what is this? What does this chemical do? <clears throat> what, what are its toxicities, if any? Um, worker health and safety issues, if any? Um, pollinator issues, if any? So we go through kind of a you know a rigorous process of deciding whether uh, a standard is appropriate, whether that's a chemical or a, a different kind of practice or something like that. Um, right now, for ex for example, we have um, someone at Linfield talking about. Um, social sustainability uh, in our in our social sustainability part of our standard it's a little bit lacking um, so we had Linfield do a basically a literature review of all the different standards that are out there for for this kind of thing and they came back to us with a long list of recommendations of what we could put into our standard and so now the next step is for a committee to look at that and make comments uh, and maybe this belongs in the standard, maybe this belongs as a field day or, or a newsletter or something like that, but maybe it doesn't belong in the standard necessarily. So those kind of decisions get made at committee level and then when the committee agrees, which is you know more or less every time they, they come to a, a, an agreement, um, they hammer something out um, that will pass it on to the board of directors for a vote and then the board will vote and then that will get recommended to the IOBC and then they'll approve it. And it, so there's a process of changing or amending or, or removing standards or anything like that. So um, the consensus thing, I mean, sometimes, I mean, there are definitely thorny issues that have come up uh, regularly. There are thorny issues with, mainly with chemicals. So whether something is appropriate for a sustainability program, whether something's appropriate for our sustainability program uh, or for Oregon or for Washington, conditions are different, climate conditions are different. Um, farming is different in, Wash in eastern Washington than it is in the Willamette Valley. So um, I think that's where consensus can be difficult and that's where things can kind of drag out sometimes. And it's, nobody really wants to upset anybody because we're all friends and colleagues. And uh, so I, don't, I think that there tends to be a little bit of caution um, where maybe a decision might need to be made um, that might upset somebody. So, or might, you know, might, we might lose members because we decide to take a stand on something. And that's a consideration because if we don't have enough members, the program can't support itself. And if the program can't support itself, then we can't push out all of the other good work that we're doing. If we're focusing on this one little thing that maybe is an issue um, that someone isn't happy with and we take a stand on it, let's say we lose, you know, I don't know, 50% of our members because we took a stand on whatever it is, you know, bottle weight or, uh, you know, glyphosate or something like that. Um, if we take a stand on that, we lose half our members, we lose the program, and then what? You know, so that consideration is there. It's not the, it's not the final consideration by any means. It's not an overriding consideration, but it's definitely something we think about. Um, but 
that's more of a business consideration and a um, organizational thing than a, than a scientific or kind of sustainability-minded thing. Although I guess you know if you don't have you know a business, you're not sustainable, right? So. <laughs> You brought up earlier kind of a customer service background and now feeling like there's a bit of a customer service. So tell me about both the, the kind of the dealing with the members you have um, and also um, attracting new members. How, how does it work and how do you sort of approach it from that kind of customer experience or customer service perspective? Sure. I mean, I think that probably the biggest plus that, you know, customer service gives is that answer to Technical questions, um, technical questions about farming, we can we or or winemaking, we can give to the technical committees to answer. So I funnel that to the right person, depending on the question that comes in. Um, but you know, a lot of questions are about when is my inspection, where's my certificate, how do I access this or that on the website? And so there's a lot of kind of um, this stuff isn't easy. It's a, you know it's it's a very niche thing that we're we're asking people to do, and so you have to kind of walk them through it. And you know, one one year I remember I sat with somebody in a coffee shop for like three hours, just teaching them how to do the website. And that person's been a member ever since. That was like ten years ago. So it's like you know, you give someone help, and you teach them how to do it, and you teach them how um, the mechanics of the program work, and then the rest is you know is easy for them because they're already doing it really in the on the farm, and so they're just filing the paperwork that they probably would be keeping anyway. Um, and so the customer service aspect of it is more about kind of the, the minutiae and the mechanics of the program. But that's how I kind of work with current members. Right now, we just hired actually a communications coordinator a couple months ago. And right today, actually, she's calling around to all of our members in the Willamette Valley and inviting them to this field day that we're having on August 1st. And I told her, well, don't just invite them to the field day. Ask them, you know, if they're having any if they're having any issues or if they have any questions. And there have been a couple questions, like when's my inspection? Because maybe the inspector hasn't gotten in touch with them yet or something like that. So unless we get in touch with them, typically they won't contact me until it's too late or, you know. So we have to be proactive about talking to people. And as far as getting new members, a lot of it's word of mouth. A lot of it is uh, the vineyard management companies signing up their new clients to live, results partners, Sterling Wine Grapes. Um, Atlas, they all, you know, they, they tell them about this program because a lot of their, their new clients might not, they might be new to farming or new to the wine industry and they don't know what this certification is all about and why they should spend the money on it or something like that. And they, I wouldn't say they sell them on it, but they, you know, they tell, they, they educate them about it. And, and I think that that's where many of our new members come from is from the management companies actually when they have new clients. Um, and of course, we have a presence at the Oregon Wine Symposium, and um, sometimes we advertise in the Oregon Wine Press and industry things. Um, it doesn't necessarily come from um, public demand, usually. Uh, sometimes it comes from distributor or certain markets will ask for a certification. Um, there are certain markets that require certification to sell certain types of bottlings. And if that's the case, then sometimes we'll get someone frantic saying, oh, can I get certified this year? And, how do I do that? And so, like, you have to kind of calm them down a little bit and give them a little bit of reassurance that it's it's not too hard. We can do it. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of it's kind of just handholding is the wrong word, you know, because these are very capable people. But it's very, like I said, it's very niche. It's very specific. And so, 
speaking to them in a respectful way and, and understanding what their, their question is and what their needs are and what their fears are. You know, this is, this is a lot of psychology going into this too. So um, I think that, like I said earlier, my first job talking to these band directors really helped me because those were some angry people. And so I, I really understand, I think, what it's like to, to need something and be afraid that you might not be able to get it, you know? So I try to help people to achieve whatever that is they want within reason, of course. So um, I think that actually sets us apart a little bit from the other certifiers. So, you know, someone might say, well, why would I go through it live instead of through the organic program? Well, the organic program is a, a federal program that applies to all crops and, you know, as such, they might not have the best, you know, kind of, or most responsive, I guess, kind of customer service to their standard. The certifiers are good, the local certifiers like Oregon Tilth and, and Oregon Department of Agriculture, those are the certifiers for the organic standard, but they're beholden to this, to this behemoth in the federal government. And so they only have so much freedom to, to, to do things for people that um, could help them out along the way. Um, so I think that's kind of where we have an advantage is that we're of the industry in, in that um, all of our volunteers are industry people. I'm not a grower, I'm not a winemaker, so I'm kind of like the, the arm's length and the inspectors are the arm's length and the IOBC is the arm's length. And so we don't have growers writing their own standards to which they're certifying. We have third parties that, that are a check to that. But the industry knowledge is really important for making sure that the standard means something and that it's achievable within a framework of, of sustainability and of a framework of actually improving the conditions in the region. You mentioned being the, the, the non-grower in the group, the non-winemaker in the group. How, especially in the, in, the, in the beginning, how did you go about sort of making yourself Making your, making your authority mean something? How did you go about kind of fitting in and, and, and showing people that you knew what you were talking about and were the right leader for the space? Well, I took a VIT class with Al, actually, at McDonald at Chemeketa, and that helped a lot. He's a great teacher. And um, I read pretty much everything I could get my hands on and went to every meeting that I could go to. Um, and eventually, you know, I actually had, um, I had a meeting with someone the other day that said, how do you know all this stuff about these chemicals? Like, they, are you a chemist? And it's like, no, no, I've been doing this for almost 20 years. And after a while, the, the same names stick with you. And it's like, oh, it's this one again, you know? And so you start to see like what the problems are with each of them. And then um, you sort of talk about how to move away from doing it. And then like kind of the, the integrated pest management and the, the integrated production in the winery these things are common among um, all of the different certification programs around the world. Um, so what to do for a certain pest in Oregon is gonna probably be the same thing that you're gonna do for that same pest in California or, or Washington. It might be a slightly different chemical because of the, um, because of the, the conditions in the soil or the climate. Um, but the cultural methods, which is what we call them, like pulling the leaves for powdery mildew so you have airflow, that's the same everywhere. So I think that you start to see this stuff over and over and over again, and eventually you can't help but to become an expert on it if you stick around long enough. Um, 
so I think that's, it's probably just a matter of me being me doing this for so long that eventually, oh, he's the one that knows about that, you know. Mm -hmm. So, have you seen people looking for live um, when they're looking for a bottle of wine? Have you heard? Have you seen live become kind of a standard uh, for consumers? Me personally, um, because I tend to talk about it more <laughs> than other people when I go shopping for, you know, I'll say to like the, the wine steward at New Seasons, oh, do you have any, any live wines? And I'll know what that means um, because they're the one buying the, the product and that particular chain of grocery stores really is interested in sustainability. So um, they'll show me, you know, I'll just turn around the bottles and see the, the label. And that's because I shop there for the most part. But if you go into a, you know, a bigger kind of global brand like Safeway or something like that, you might not see the label as much and they might not know what you're talking about because they're not a niche kind of sustainability uh, grocery store. That I mean, that's not what they're, that they're not trying to sell that kind of a product. They're not taking that angle. Um, and so it really depends on who you talk to, I guess is the answer to that question. I think that there, there have been studies that have done been done through full glass research and Washington State University did a study that said that live certification brings about a $3 premium to, to wines over non-certified wines, $3 a bottle. Um, and full glass research has said that, you know, all other things equal, so price, look, you know, aesthetics, the certification will be the tiebreaker, whether it's live or organic or whatever. So um, I think that the public is probably I mean, the, the public is awake now. They, they, want, they want the world to be better. And I think that anything you can do, whether it's B Corp or live or organic or any kind of standard that ostensibly will help fix things if everybody was doing them, is going to be the one that people choose that are interested in those issues and that are uh, somewhat, you know, you know, have somewhat of an awareness of environmentalism or, or social sustainability um, or DEI or anything like that, you're gonna, you're gonna start seeing people choosing their, their products by how they're made and how the company that makes them acts in the global kind of business community. And I think the role that certifications play is that like we actually set a pretty rigorous standard for them. Even the, even the least rigorous certification does have uh, merit and it's better than nothing. Um, now people can probably, you know, they'll say, well, I'm already doing this and I'm actually going way beyond what Live is asking for and that's great. And I'm the first person to say like, you know, if you don't see value in, in our particular certification, don't do it because whatever you're doing is working for you. But all of our standards are published. They're all open source. Um, we allow people to, to download them off our website and farm to them if they want to. But to get that label on the bottle, you have to prove to the government, actually, when you go for your, your labeling approval that you have the certificate. So there's a check there as well. So you, if you're saying you're live certified, you have to have the certificate. Um, but yeah, if, if you go beyond live, if, you, if you're doing things that are like way beyond what we're asking for, then talk about it. You know, you might not have a certification that actually like meets your, your rigor, so make one. You know, I mean, if that means, if it means that much to you to have a certification on your bottle, then, then create one. Um, 
You mentioned earlier kind of the, the presentation in Brussels being kind of a career highlight for you. Tell me, tell me about how that came to be, how you came to be invited to that, and what was sort of the message you wanted to impart to the EU? Well, the IOBC was involved with it. So the IOBC was, is an outgrowth of actually the UN from the 50s. They would, I forget what the original name of it was, but they, they were founded um, as a result of all of the kind of intensive agriculture that came out of World War II and all the chemicals and, and everything like that. So um, they've been around for a long time and they're very respected in Europe especially. And um, they were invited to this and they said, uh, you know, oh, you have this program in the, in the States that you're, you're working with. Why don't you bring them out to talk about certification? Because the IOBC doesn't actually do certification. They put out standards. They do research and they put out standards. And then we act as sort of a field test case for them. Um, and so they invited me and I talked about certification. And, you know, the funny thing was is they were running behind, so I actually didn't get as much time as I wanted. So I had to give all of my presentation in, you know, an abbreviated speech. But it was, it was well received. And, um, you know, it's so long ago now that I barely remember it. But, like, the, just the feeling that, like, we had arrived, I think, on a global stage and at a legislative level, even if it wasn't the states, it was, you know, someone from another country saying, or from another group of countries saying, what you're doing is interesting enough that we should consider it here. Maybe it's, maybe it's valuable for our um, member states to, to implement some kind of a certification scheme for the wine industry. And I think in, you know, for instance, in Switzerland, they had, before us, they had uh, subsidies for people that would do this stuff. We don't, we're not there yet, so we don't have subsidies for people to plant pollinator-friendly plants or, um, or anything like that. So hopefully that's, you know, maybe coming up because people respond to subsidies, obviously. Why, why wouldn't you? Um, I mean, this stuff isn't cheap. You know, planning certain things isn't, isn't cheap and changing your, your habits isn't cheap. And a lot of this stuff gets externalized down the line to pollution and things like that if you don't do them. Um, so that's where you save the money is someone else has to pay for it eventually. So, um, so yeah, I think that the Brussels event was important for me to also meet people that were not uh, in my usual circle and that like would inspire me to do maybe other things. I, I had one mentor who, who was with the IOBC actually, uh, Frank Winans his name was, and he wrote a lot of the, a lot of the standards and he, he, I sort of looked up to him as a person who was doing the things that I was maybe at the time not brave enough to do or say, um, a bit, you know, for fear of um, I don't know people saying like, "Oh, you're too extreme," or "You're, you're, you're." We will find somebody else to do this to do this work that maybe isn't so uh, pushing us so hard, you know. But he would say things like, "Oh, you're howling with the wolves, Chris." <laughs> you know, if I were to try to kind of like justify. Uh, you know, some kind of bad, you know, not bad behavior, but justify some kind of like uh, behavior that was status quo, let's say. You're howling with the wolves. And I always remember that he passed away from actually from, from COVID. Um, so that, um, that person had a big impact on my life. He did and uh, Jason Tosh did and Al did as well. So um, all of this stuff kind of, to, all of this is to say that I think that like meeting as many people that are doing this work is really, really important because you're going to see things that you hadn't thought of, you're going to hear arguments you hadn't thought of, you're going to maybe reconsider ideas that you thought were good ideas and, um, and have some really good, you know, some really good Belgian beer <laughs> afterwards, you know, there's, 
there's something to be said for you know camaraderie too. So give us an idea of uh, sort of what, what a typical day looks like for you or a typical week, typical month looks like for you as an executive director of Live. Obviously you mentioned working remotely now. So what is it you're focusing on and, and what, do you, what do you kind of focus your time on? Well, for the last, I mean, for the last few months, it's been training up our new employee and she comes from a non-wine background and actually a non-sustainability background. We hired her for her communications skills um, and her ideas and her general demeanor. Um, and so training her on all of this stuff, it's like it's basically retraining myself because I haven't had to do that in five years or something like that. So um, I'm retraining myself essentially on all of this work. Um, a lot of things change so fast in the industry that it's like connections and who owns what and what the goals of the industry are change um, and the climate keeps changing. So it's like what's what's coming down the pike next. So a typical week for me is um, right now, like I said, training her. So you know, Zoom a lot of Zoom calls, a lot of answering emails, and kind of walking her through what her job should be and what you know what is appropriate for. Uh, the tone of live, you know, if she's doing a lot of kind of social media and newsletters and it's like, well, we don't want to be too goofy and we don't want to be too serious. We're sort of like, you know, we need to be approachable and friendly, but also know what we're talking about, you know? So um, kind of finding that, that space is really, is really tricky, um, but she's doing a great job. So um, her name is Isabel Toby. So for the, for the record here. Um, if you want to interview her in five or six years, yeah, that'll be good. Um, so other than that, a lot of answering emails, a lot of um, uh, times I'll have to coordinate with technical committees to um, work on issues like uh, if someone has a pest issue that none of our standards will address, someone might submit what's called a variance and they'll say, oh, we want to be able to do this but your standard doesn't allow it. So can you look at this and tell us if it's got merit, if it would work, um, if it's sustainable, if, if, we, if we could possibly do it and still be in your program. And so that takes up some time, managing the volunteers, um, speaking with, um, I just had a meeting with Catherine Cole about her podcast and she's going to um, have us on her podcast and so, talking to her about what that looks like, you know, having a meeting with the media and having a meeting with um, a lot of meetings and so on. But they're, they're, you know, they're not so much meetings as they are just kind of like chit chats with, with who I consider friends at this point. Um, so it's not so, it's not so corporate. Um, and a lot of reading, um, I try to keep up on, on all of this stuff because it's constantly changing. And by the time you learn something, it's out of date and you have to, to keep up with that. Um, last year I worked on um, a new website which took up a lot of my time so that's you know building uh, customer information systems that comes back to the customer service again making sure people know like how to do certain things and that it's easy for them all that stuff it's it's very intentional and it takes a lot of time and it, when, you, when you do it right it looks like it didn't take any time mm -hmm. putting on the annual meeting for instance that takes we start that in September, August, September, and then we put it on in March of the following year. We had Jancis Robinson come out to our last annual meeting. That, started, that conversation started in like October of the previous year. And even just finding her email address took a week. So having to you know, talk to as many people as possible um, that know her or have dealt with her and 
Um, it's a lot of kind of Sherlock Holmes kind of stuff. Uh, actually, that is a lot of my job is kind of like this like detective work for um, for the for the the members for the annual meeting. You know, trying to figure out who the next speaker is for the annual meeting that might people might be interested in. Um, and the annual meeting is a lot of logistics. It's a lot of event planning. Um, and so that, that meeting, in, it's usually at the end of March, that usually brings to a head all of the work that everybody's been doing since like right around harvest. So like right after harvest is when my harvest starts. So I, I'm very busy in December, very busy in January. Everybody has off in January and is able to go to meetings. And so that's when all the meetings happen. And so I'm at a meeting, technical committee meeting, you know, regularly in January. And then I have to take their work and it's all this stuff and, you know, in a Google file and then I take it and I put it into a document that has to work for the membership to understand. And um, it seems easy when you, when you kind of talk about it, but when you, when you sit down and do it, it's not easy because it takes a lot of you know, uh, design work and like human psychology, like I was mentioning, and where are people gonna click on the website, user design and things like that. Um, user experience. <clears throat> so um, I think a lot of my job is trying to understand how to best serve the work that we're doing to the members and how, how to best serve the work that they're doing because really they're doing all the work. I'm presenting them with the recommendations and the standards, but they're the ones that are out there doing the actual work. And so I have to give justice to that and serve that in a way that honors, honors their work. Um, that's important to me. Um, and it's, it's, all, it's all very carefully considered. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so there's a lot of careful consideration during my week. Maybe sometimes overthinking things, um, which, you know, that's a whole other story, so. <laughs> a byproduct. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about 2020 uh, specifically, given that given all the complications of that year. Obviously, you know, systems like systems are always pretty easy to do when everything's running fine and easy. And then you have a year like 2020 happens. So I'm curious about that year specifically. If there was anything that anything unique or that you had to handle in that year, any kind of any kind of from your perspective, that harvest, what, what was unique about it? That's a great question. I mean, from from my perspective, way before harvest. So when it first started, when COVID first kind of got announced as a, as a thing, it was I think January or February, and um, our annual meeting was coming up in March. And um, I said to the board, should we, should we postpone <laughs> the annual meeting or cancel it? And I remember someone on the board said, oh, it's just, you know, this will be done over in six weeks, <laughs> you know? And I was like, I don't know about that. <laughs> and so, you know, obviously, in hindsight, but back then we didn't know what was happening. And so um, I talked to our lawyer and asked them if, because we're a nonprofit corporation, we have to have an annual meeting. Um, I asked them, you know, what, what do we do, you know, if we can't have it? And they said, well, you know, you can, you can cancel it or have it, you know, online or something like that if you really needed to, um, as long as you have a vote for, for the board and everything like that. So as long as you fulfill the legal ob obligations, it's okay if you cancel the meeting. So we, we canceled it. And that was uh, uh, the first time ever that we've canceled an annual meeting. And I, I bring it up because that is our big kind of marquee event that um, I think is probably the most important part of the, the year from, a, from a, an organizational 
perspective and uh, kind of a collegial perspective, people getting together. And so for the next couple of years, we had it via Zoom. Um, and I tend to, with, with, stuff like, with stuff like that, I tend to be overly cautious and or what I consider probably um, appropriately cautious, let's, let's say that. Um, and so I didn't, I, I, I didn't want to send the inspectors out into the field and people were upset. Why, why is my inspector calling me over Zoom? I have to be in the field, why can't they be in the field? Um, I suppose there's a, there's a respect for their health. Well, one of our inspectors is a <clears throat> cancer survivor, so he's got immunocompromised issues. Um, and then they're visiting multiple people in a day and a lot of our members are a little bit older. And so it's like you have to have some kind of consideration for that. And so I made the decision to not send anyone out in the field for a couple of years. And so all of the inspections were done via Zoom and via FaceTime and kind of sending in videos and things like that instead of being there in person. And people didn't really like that, but they understood, of course, um, in the long run. And I think they came to appreciate the caution. And we're really getting fully back in the field this year. This was kind of the first year that we're really sending people back every, uh, to every vineyard to, to do an on-site inspection. So you, there really is a value to it. And I think I caught a lot of flack for, for being cautious on that, but I'm, I stand by it. Um, and as far as the harvest goes, um, that was the, the wildfire year. And I think people were really freaking out about that and with rightfully so. And um, I don't know, to be perfectly honest, I don't know if it actually bore out any kind of problems in the, in the wine. Um, that's for somebody else to answer. So, you know, it's like you're dealing with kind of these massive catastrophic events all happening at the same time and still trying to do this very niche thing that maybe isn't, you know, the most important thing in the world for the people that you're, you're serving. And we, we went from 340 something vineyards down to, I think our lowest point was like 319. So we lost quite a bit of membership that year because people were like, we're not even gonna bottle our wine this year. So like, why would we go through with this, you know? And then, you know, they started to trickle back in the following couple of years and we're kind of, you know, in this weird spot now where people don't know what to do, I think. Um, a lot of people are going organic now and um, why should I do both kind of thing? So that's the valid question. And, but the you know, COVID kind of wreaked a little bit of havoc on everybody, obviously, a lot of bit of havoc. And, um, and you know, luckily I have a good team and, and they all know how to use uh, Zoom. And so like we, and I had already been working remotely up till that point anyway, so it wasn't so, such a big deal for me, but the isolation, I think, was a problem for people. And um, <clears throat> I don't know, there was, there, there's this feeling, I think, of community sort of that got fractured during that, not that there was like that, this big sort of feeling of community before then in, in, in the modern world, but I think that like the community feeling that we had before in live sort of started to get a little brittle. Um, we're rebuilding it now and everything with, with more in-person events and, and stuff like that. But I think that that's the only way we're gonna get out of the situation we're in the, in the world is with this kind of like reconnection with each other and sort of trying to get rid of this alienation from our work. And I don't know, it's, it's, I think that that has a lot to do with 
the harm that's being caused in the world today is that everyone's sort of kind of like in their own silos and doing their own things and nobody thinks that they're going to be able to solve anything by themselves so they just don't do anything, you know. Um, so I think that the community aspect of live is actually probably, I would say in the top three, three answers that I get whenever I ask a group of people like why are you in the program, it's, it's the connections with their, their colleagues and coming to the meetings and and stuff like that. It's usually, you know, in the top three answers that I get. Especially from a sort of sustainability, agricultural perspective, where is it now compared to where it was when you started? I'd say it's more of an industry now. Um, when I started, I mean, I, I didn't start that long ago. It was 17 years ago I started, which was, you know, a good amount of time. But it, in 2007, it was still, it was, you could tell that it was turning into a full-fledged industry. I think that um, it started off as sort of a group of kind of um, visionaries, maybe even misfits, if you want to call them that, and, and they, they proved that something beautiful could be done, and then it turned into more, I think, of an artisan um, craft kind of industry. Um, and then that brings with it, I think, a cachet and like a coolness and sort of a, you know, ooh, how do I get in on that? I mean, it's a story of a lot of things, right? So, um, and then the money starts coming in and it um, turns it into like a full-fledged industry where things are kind of churning every year. And um, I see a lot more vineyards that are being managed by management companies rather than by the owner of the vineyard. Um, there's still, of course, you know, the artisan aspect of it. And I think that's probably the bulk of the industry, but I think that now we're a globally recognized wine industry here, so kind of have to feed that with um, with product, and you see the industry growing as a result of that. The, the number of acres planted, and the price of grapes, and the price of wine, and everything like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, when I first came here, I mean, I moved to Oregon in in January of 2007, and I kind of didn't know the first thing about the industry here, and I was kind of just like starry-eyed about it. And just like everybody else, I think, that comes to a place like this for the first time, and um, it's so different than New Jersey, right? So, um, so I guess um, it's, become, I, it's become more um, moving faster and, and, and more, there's a, there's a higher risk, I think, to decision making because it's you're risking all that it's that's been built i'm not trying to be diplomatic here but i think that there is a risk tolerance that um prevents people from a low risk tolerance that that prevents people from making big decisions on matters that might Im impact their bottom line or uh, impact um, the reputation or their whole crop for for um, for all that that's worth. So I think that, yeah, maybe, maybe people were, were willing to take more risks back then um, and try things, um, even if they didn't fail. And that's, I think that comes back to the community aspect, um, where you're more willing to take risks when you know that people have your back. If you're going to fail at something, at least people will have your back and, and bring you back up, you know, if, if you fall. So I think when, when industries become too 
um, mechanical or detached kind of from the product and it's 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 you might as well be growing widgets you know so like when that starts to happen, then people don't want to take the risk because they, they're afraid they're not going to, they'll just be chewed up in the machine and left behind. Um, and so I like to see collaboration. I like to see people say like, oh, let's think of a different way to do this thing that might not be commercialized right now. Maybe we can figure out a different way to do this to make it more sustainable that no one's thought of before. I would like to see more imagination. I'd like to see more creativity and like I said earlier, poetry. So like, just kind of like this like feeling of, I mean, look at, his, look at this place, look at what we're growing, look at, taste what we're growing, smell what we're growing. Like, we're not, we're not you know, pumping out Mitsubishis. You know, they're, they're, they're beautiful natural products that we're growing and, and that can make a transcendent thing. So, um, I, I don't have, a, I, don't, I wouldn't say that I have a lament for the way things have gone, but I, I do kind of look at it as like, all right, guys, like we've built all this great capital and this great reputation. Let's like use it for the good of everybody and the good of the planet and its people and everything. And I think people are doing that for the most part. Um, but it's like, you know, it's, it's very, um, what's the word? Tantalizing to kind of go after the go after the money. So I hope that anyone listening to this doesn't you know doesn't think I'm talking about them. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I think that if you make a good product or have a good service, you know the money will come and you'll be served. So. And what, so what comes next for the industry? Where do you see it going? Hmm. Well, one of my heroes is Mimi Castile. Everyone's hero. Yeah, everyone's hero. I just saw her speak in Napa for a, a, a convention on climate change. And her, her focus now is on water and, and how to hold on to it for, you know, for for agricultural use, but just for for human use, you know, and for obviously for the environment and for all of the, we're not the only things here, right? So um, we have to stop thinking about ourselves as being kind of like, what, you know, what comes first for us kind of thing. So she, I think she has that mindset and I, I love listening to her talk. And I think that I would love to see more people kind of follow that path. I mean, Mimi is kind of one end of the spectrum where I think that People have to do what's right for them. And I don't think that what she's espousing is like right for everybody, obviously, or, or what I'm espousing. And so I think people have to do what's right for them, but I want everyone to hear it. And I want everyone to kind of understand where, where we're coming from and why we're saying the things that we're saying and kind of you know asking people to do the things that we're asking. Um, and so if I can help it, I think the industry will take that outward growth that it's been seeing for so many years and maybe turn it inward and grow the quality of the product and get closer to it and less mechanical with it um, and not get taken in by these kind of like, uh, you know, AI and precision agriculture and all of this stuff that is can be used as, a, as an aid, but like not to rely on it as sort of 
um, the solution, the silver bullet. You know, you see a lot of people say, oh, now this thing is coming out, this whatever it is, an electric tractor or a different kind of package or something like that. It's going to solve all our problems. And it reminds me a lot of when I was a teenager and I played guitar and I used to write songs and I used to think, oh, only if I had that one pedal, I'd be a great musician. If I had that pedal, I could write this song, you know, for my guitar. Um, it reminds me a lot of that. Like, it's like you have to like take, push all that stuff away and just like get back to, I think, basics and use those things to get closer to what you're trying to do and not try to just use it to solve like the problem of um, I have too much work to do and it's too expensive. Let's like find this next thing, this drone or something like that to, um, to solve our problem. Um, so yeah, I think that those things can be an aid, but they can also alienate you from the things you're trying to do. Um, but I think that the industry might probably start relying on that kind of stuff more often because of labor shortages, because some of it is more sustainable from kind of a, an energy consumption point of view. Um, you know, an electric tractor is better than a diesel tractor from a climate perspective. So, but you have to understand that it's not going to solve everything and it's not going to eliminate the problem of monoculture. And if anything, it could make it worse because if things, there's something called the um, Jevons paradox where if you um, come up with a, a product or an invention that maybe saves some energy or saves uh, some efficient, makes some efficiency, that efficiency tends to get used up by more of the product. So like the famous example is like replacing halogen light bulbs with LEDs in street lamps, right? You replace this, it's great, we have much lower energy uses from the street lamps. Well, they just put more street lamps in because with, with all that saved energy, they were able to put more lights in. And so you have to be careful with that. And I think that happens with, with every industry and it's a danger that happens with farming too. Um, and winemaking is that you, you find this thing that's like this kind of like really great new technology and then it allows you to like get bigger without any kind of consideration for what that bigness will do to the world because you're not, you're, you're on your own, you know, 30 acre farm. You're not farming a million acres. You're not, you know, you know, an entire ecosystem. You're, you're a micro ecosystem. You're, you know, you don't, I think, see kind of the impacts beyond your own farm. So if you make your life easier, then it's a good thing, right? But it might externalize down the, down the line. So I hope the industry just is cautious with that kind of stuff. Um, because I think it's, they're shiny new objects all the time. What about what, for your future in the industry, what comes next for you? What are you looking ahead to? Does a magician ever really reveal his secrets? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I mean, the industry is, and, and this job is cyclical, so it's, you know, every season has its, has its thing. And trying to keep things fresh, and inspire people and maybe like try to not wear myself out um, in people's minds, like wear their, their patience out with me. So uh, um, what's next for me? I, I would really like to maybe take my foot off the pedal a little bit. I've been going hard for so long and I think that it's, you know, I'm, I'm a little burned out on it to be frank. Um, but I still have the energy and the interest and the passion in it. It's just uh, I have to try to get more people involved and, and have them 
sort of take on a little bit of the, the burden. I mean, don't get me wrong, like in our program, we have so many people doing so much work f f at a volunteer level. So I am blown away by how many people put their, their energy and effort into it. Um, but the, the mental energy, I guess, of doing this work is, uh, you know, some people just will say, just take a vacation. So, but if I take a vacation, there's no one to do the work. So it's like, <laughs> you know, that's catch-22, right? So um, the, my future, I, wanted, I want to, I'm a creative type, and I want to do more creative things. I, I actually have said this, that the first part of my life, first, I'm 47, the first 47 years of my life, I've been using my brain, and now the next, I want to use my hands. My grandfather was a plumber. I come from sort of working class background, and I, I think my parents sort of shielded me from that because I think as the generations go, if you have like, you know, see someone struggle with their hands and you want your children to work with their minds and, and you know, make a good living and stuff like that, I think that's great, and I really appreciate my parents doing that for me, but I see there's a, there's a thing that's calling me, and I don't know what it is. It's something to do with my hands. Um, whether that's you know making art or or playing music or whatever it is, um, making things with my hands um, rather than my mind. So I don't know if, I don't know if that has anything to do with the wine industry or with live, but that's like you know the next half of my life. I'm kind of going to try to maybe go towards that sort of a, a mode. So you mentioned earlier in your interview. The idea of wine being able to sort of support a, trans, a sort of transcendent experience. So I'm curious, as we kind of wrap this interview up, tell me about, for you personally, tell me about a, a, a wine transcendent experience that you've had and something that sort of stuck with you. 99 Beaufrere at the Heathman Hotel with Sterling Fox. I remember we were, we were at a table. I don't remember who else was there. It was like a full table. But I remember he ordered, he ordered that. And he's like, what do you taste this? And uh, I had it, and it was like I, I thought I'd been drugged. And I, wasn't, I hadn't been drinking that much. I wasn't drunk or anything like that. I just, it, it took me somewhere else that, that like I've never been to again. I was like, this is, this is metaphysical. And I know I've, I watched your interview with Al, and he said that wine is just a, a drink to have with pork chops, I think he said, right? <laughs> and that's true, you know, but first of all, I'm a vegetarian, so I don't eat pork chops. But the, that's ignoring that transcendence. And, you know, every different kind of fermented beverage has its own buzz, and wine has a very special one. And, <clears throat> yeah, that, I, I don't even know how to explain it. It was magic. It was, like, it was just like something that had never happened before or since. And I've had other experiences with, with good wines. 1984, uh, Amity Vineyards with Al McDonald at a dinner in McMinnville that the... Uh, the sommelier said, you know, um, I'm going to open this. It's one of the last bottles left of this vintage from this producer, and you have to drink it within 15 minutes or else it's gone, you know? And so we had it, and it was, it was amazing, and it was transcendent, but it was nothing compares to that, that Beaufrere that I had. That was probably the, the most magical moment of wine in my life. So. And Sterling is one of my good friends, so I, it's like you get to commune with these beautiful people over this beautiful thing. Um, and Beaufort is biodynamic, organic. So they're, they're sustainable, yeah? <laughs> right? So, um, yeah, so I think that 
all was good that night. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to have more nights like that in my life. Absolutely. Thank you. That's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything that we didn't cover today that you'd like to cover? Uh, no, I think that was everything. I, th I didn't think I was going to be able to fill an hour. To be I was like, what am I going to talk about? Everybody says that. Yeah. That's the challenge I take. Well, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your stories with us and your philosophies with us as well. And thank you again to the folks at Ponzi for the use of their space. We always appreciate them making time for us here. We'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.